0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the LitBreaker Ad Network. LitBreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web, with breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers, it's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, Or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent bookish people? Look no further. LitBreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's LitBreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what struggle, you know? It was incredible. I mean, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Bradley Steves
0: just one person at just one time, right? Okay, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is you encountering my disembodied voice. This is me encountering my own internal monologue. How are you today? I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. I'm here in Los Angeles, California. Beautiful Los Angeles. It's a nice day outside and uh, here I am indoors in a dimly lit room with the curtains drawn talking into a microphone. My guest is Mike Sachs. He's got a new book out. Its technical uh, official release date is June 24th, 2014. The book is called Poking a Dead Frog: Conversations with Today's Top, uh, top Comedy Writers. It's available from Penguin. Uh, I should add that Poking a Dead Frog is is uh, essentially the sequel to Mike's previous book uh called And Here's the Kicker, which is also a compendium of interviews with top comedy writers and funny people. Very enjoyable and uh, very uh, informative, and Mike and I are going to be talking about humor and comedy writing at length in just a minute. So, uh, what's happening? I'm getting ready to go on a family vacation all this week. My daughter is off of school. My wife and I uh, knew this was coming. You know, earlier this month, we were thinking about it. We were trying to uh, figure out what to do, because the kid is off of school. And so, You know, we didn't want to do anything too elaborate logistically, long days of travel, airports, etc. And, uh, you know, we don't want to break the bank. So what we did is we rented a cabin, a small cottage, you might call it, a casita (laughs) up in Santa Barbara County. And, uh, you know, we're bringing everything. Our daughter uh, obviously is coming with us and our dog, Walter. And uh, we're going to go camp out for a week. The cottage uh, is on somebody's property, as I understand it. Somebody up there has, you know, a large piece of property uh, out in the sticks, and they rent this uh, cabin out to people. And there are are chickens on the property, possibly some small goats. Uh, There's a swimming pool, which sounds lovely. You know, the pictures of this place, they look gorgeous. A lot of great hiking. You can bike around, get some fresh air. I'm looking forward to it. And you know, we did this at the last minute, sort of an impulsive move. We we wanted to get out of Dodge. We've had a uh, you know a bit of a rough go recently, and uh, we we could use some time out of the city to recharge. So yeah, we did it. We bit the bullet. We rented this place, and I'm happy about it. But I am somewhat concerned about a couple of a, about a couple of things in particular. A the cottage has no air conditioning, so if it gets really hot and the forecast looks like it's going to be really fucking hot, <laughs> we're going to be cooking inside of this very small structure. Uh, and then the other thing is that the cottage is—it's uh, a studio space. It's large, but it's a studio, which, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, we we really didn't think through very well. It's it's a it's a nicely appointed cottage. I don't mean to make it sound too, uh, rustic. I mean, it's got a full kitchen. It's got couches, but, uh, you know, it's one big room, which means we're all going to be sleeping in there, the entire family, uh, which means I'm not getting any on my vacation, which sucks. I didn't even think of that when I was booking the place. I was so drawn in by the pictures uh, of this bucolic setting. I was imagining my daughter. Uh, Playing with chickens, my dog, uh, frolicking amid the flowers and the lavender. You know what I mean? So it's going to be a lot of togetherness and uh, it could could easily become a disaster if the temperatures get out of hand. The woman who owns this place swears it doesn't get too hot in there. (laughs) She has assured me. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just trying to make some memories. With my family you know You got to do this stuff when you're a parent You got to do this stuff in life period But uh, you know with a kid You got to find a way I need to get her out Into some new environments I don't want Her entire storehouse of childhood Memories to be confined To uh, our apartment in Los Angeles Or like Some crazy person On Hollywood Boulevard uh, Like screaming at the sky and pulling his pants down in public Which happens on like a daily basis. So as you're, as you're listening to this, I'm actually beginning this week of vacation. Uh, But uh, just to clarify here, as is my tendency, I've made sure to record episodes of this program ahead of time so that uh, the podcast will continue on its regular schedule uh, while I'm gone. I could take a week off, but I'm not doing it because uh, you know, I'm here to deliver the goods. I'm the hardest working podcaster in uh, show business. <laughs> I'm committed to you, my audience, and I hope you appreciate that. Thank you. So uh, if you want to thank me, you can sign up for premium, get the app, the free app, download it to your device, then sign up for premium, stream everything, the entire archives, or uh, short of that, write a good review of the show over at iTunes. Shower me with gifts is what I'm saying. Please do that. I'm going to be in a cabin all week. I'm going to be in a sweltering one room cabin surrounded by chickens with my entire family, and I'm not going to be getting laid. I could use your support. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond, My guest once again is Mike Sachs. His new book, "Poking a Dead Frog: Conversations with Today's Top Comedy Writers," is available uh, now from Penguin. Great time talking with him. We share an interest in this uh, comedy writing stuff. His books are an invaluable resource if you're into that sort of thing. And it was just—it was a great fun getting to uh, chat with him. So here he is, folks. This is Mike Sachs, and his new book once again is called "Poking a
1: Dead Frog." <laughs> Right now, I am in County Mass, 22nd floor, looking west, uh, actually right next to where the ball drops at New Year's Eve, and um, and also into Jersey.
0: Okay. So- Overcast
1: day, 315, just returned from a long lunch meeting.
0: All right. So, uh, like Vanity Fair?
1: Vanity Fair Magazine. New yes.
0: York City. Okay. So, what's uh, what, what do you do for Vanity Fair?
1: Uh, editorial department, a researcher. Okay. So uh, w- work with writers, and most of the writing I do is for other magazines and for books. Um, you know, I freelance for Esquire, GQ, New Yorker, and other other such magazines. And at Vanity Fair, it's mostly editorial.
0: So, like, if you if somebody's on assignment and they're doing a big feature for uh, Vanity Fair, like you'll help uh, edit the piece.
1: Yes. Okay. Right.
0: Well, that's interesting because it's a, it, it's interesting to come at it from both angles. Like if you're writing features for other magazines, but you're also on the other side of the desk, like that, that's sort of instructive. Cause I, I do that too. Like, you know, it's, it's definitely a different skill set working editorially than it is to, to, to be the writer.
1: Absolutely. And, and as an editor, it really helps, um, as a writer, you know, not only what to do, but what not to do because every writer is an editor. Um, knowing what to include, what not to include, which way to go, and um, it's it's invaluable, really. I mean, you have to be a good editor to be a good writer.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I think I mean, and maybe you can speak to this better than I. But like, do you think that some writers are better at editing themselves than others? And and like, how central of yeah, a yeah, definitely. Like, how big of a role do you think you play um, in making these Vanity Fair pieces like really shine? Like, I guess it depends on the writer.
1: It does. I mean, there's some who are disasters and some who come in very clean, but everything needs work. I mean, the copy editors at Fair, I think, are the best in the world. They're amazing. In fact, I use one for all my books, um, Stephen Nix, who is amazing. So everything that comes in, no matter how good, no matter how, how good a writer you are, is going to need some editing. I think the only person who... Um, this may not apply to was Christopher Hitchens. His pieces came in incredibly clean, but you know, he made mistakes as well. So, um, did you get to work with him? I did. Yeah. He was amazing. He he was, uh, um, one of a kind. Yeah. He was beyond being brilliant, but he was, he was just a very nice guy and very interested in a lot of things. And in a lot of people, and there are some writers who won't speak to Someone on the editorial staff, if they're not high on the masthead, but he would speak to everyone, and I think that showed through with his writing because he was just an interested person, interested in many things. And I think that makes the best type of writer, rather than someone who shuts himself or herself off from the from the world. He opened himself up to the world. He would have a drink with anyone. Yeah, and I think because of that, he met a lot of interesting people and came up sent out about a lot of interesting stories because of that
0: yeah that's a good point you know because i think there's a like a, a natural tendency with our uh, with writers and um you know so just creative people generally sometimes to uh you know want to work solo or to close off or to I, you know there's mm-hmm. a there's a multitude of ways that that happens in life you know where you kind of can become yeah. sealed off and that's not good for art
1: it's not and I, that was a mistake i made when i first started off i was totally alone um, and I think that's very unhealthy, both socially as a person, but also professionally, you need to open yourself up to anyone and everything and you never know who you'll meet, who you make a connection with. I mean, not just a business connection, but just a human connection and to close yourself off, uh, to the world and to experiences is not a thing a writer should do. They should be as open to as many, uh, experiences and people, as they uh, possibly can, there's nothing to be gained from staying at home and watching t v it's um as a writer, you really can't get anything from that it's It's getting out in the world and meeting people and uh, discovering different things that makes you a better writer
0: so what was this period where you were close off? Was this like your early twenties out of- co- <laughs> or out of college don't, yes, don't know yes, what to do
1: <laughs> exactly yeah you know, I was um living in New Orleans and I was I call it my fat Elvis period. It was a very <laughs> depressing, awful period um, where I was just circling the drain. You know, you, you become insular. And I was writing, but the writing wasn't good. Um, it was very much um, just kind of stilted. And until I got out into the real world, it didn't improve. It's and okay. it, That's really something that I would recommend any young writer to do is like go out Meet like-minded people, and just go through life together. You don't fight it alone because it's not a competition.
0: Okay, so how did you how did you get out of that slump?
1: <laughs> it took a while. I was working in a record store in New Orleans and then Maryland, where I'm from. Um, worked there for off and on for ten years, Kent Mill Records, um, and then from that record store, I just lucked into some awful editorial job in D.C. for a newsletter. They have a ton of newsletters in D.C. for associations and other, um, you know, all these government places. So, like, I got that. And then from there, I went to Knight Ritter News, where I worked weekends and nights on top of my other editorial job, and then totally locked into a job at the Washington Post. I was just camping at the Washington Post, typing in um, classifieds, and this is pre-internet, and um, just wandered into the job office one day and saw that they were hiring a, an editor for the uh, syndicate, the Washington Post Writers Group, which put out George Will and uh, Ellen Bryant Quinn and Tom Shales and David Broder and all these people. So it was just pure luck, and I, I applied, and I got the job only because I knew this ancient word processing program called Thyrite. What was it uh, and I only knew it because I worked at XY, X-Y-W-R-I-T something like that I knew it because I worked at Night Rider and they used it so um, it was just luck, you know, but that, that's the case of being out in the real world and um, experiencing things and, you know, I never would have known about this job if I had been back in my apartment.
0: Well, I was going to say, it's like deal with the old Woody Allen quote, like 85% of life is showing up or whatever, you know
1: Yeah, well what's interesting about that quote is, I, I've been trying to narrow down the exact percentage what he used and actually what I found was that Marshall Brickman who co-wrote Andy Hall uh, Manhattan Murder Mystery, Manhattan Sleeper and other movies was quoting Woody Allen Uh, so the quote comes from Marshall Brickman quoting Woody Allen but I've never been able to determine what, what the exact quote was but I mean the gist of it is completely true it's just you have to be out and you have to be experiencing because jobs don't come from someone going through a thousand resumes and determining who is the best candidate. It's having a face attached to that resume. Right. And being at the right place at the right time.
0: Right, right, right. So, uh, you say you're from Maryland. Yeah. Okay. So born, raised, Virginia,
1: and then Maryland, Virginia, and then Maryland, Virginia. Uh, Yeah.
0: Of writerly uh, stock or like your parents work in journalism?
1: (laughs) No. No, not at all. Um, I didn't know any writers growing up. In fact, I don't think I knew any writers. Who, or anyone who knew any writers—it was just a mysterious world. But I was very much into books as a kid. I was a Huge fan of books. So was this Mostly like comedy? Was this like DC, Virginia,
0: or was it? Uh, or was it like uh, you know? No, southern.
1: Yeah, it was. It was Northern Virginia. Okay, you no, know, it was definitely Northern Virginia. It was Alexandria. And then my father—he continued to work in Alexandria, but went in every day um, from Potomac where we lived, which is right across the river.
0: Okay. And just a, a book nerdy kid.
1: Yeah, total. Um, I mean, to this day, I'm a huge fan of books. It's really what I do when I, when I'm home is just read It was comedy. And it was horror. It was Stephen King, Peter Straub, Richard Matheson, all these guys who, um, wrote about every day, like twilight zone type of horror, the, the horror that could take place next door it was never sci-fi horror. It was just like the murderer who lived next door. I was fascinated by that.
0: Well, I think that's interest. That's an interesting point because you have like to have that dual interest because uh, I was a comedy nerd as a kid. Uh, I mean, not to like, not to like excess, but I mean, I had like, uh, you know, albums on cassette tape, like Sam Kinison albums. And I was mm-hmm. obs- I was obsessed with Eddie Murphy as a kid and George Carlin. And, and I was also uh, as a, you know, an early adolescent, like super into Stephen King and horror. So it's like, Mm-hmm. You think there's something to that dual
1: fascination? <laughs> you know, like death. No, definitely. No, I think they're very very, very closely related. Very closely related. It's just like a generation off from normalcy. So um comedy has to be I mean, if it's good, it's tethered to reality but slightly off and of the same thing with horror. Where it's just like, you know, someone's going about their day and then something strange happens. You know, it's basically every Twilight Zone. So they're very, very closely related. And I found actually that a lot of comedy writers were into horror as a kid, as well as comedy and also magic. A lot of comedy writers were into magic as a kid.
0: Okay. Because like, yeah, because I find Matt, I mean, like I was, I was sort of into magic. I would do a few tricks, but again, it wasn't like I was like a young David Copperfield or anything. Um, I had a good friend in, in college who was like a real magic nerd. And I remember watching, I don't know what it was. I want to say I was watching a documentary on magic or maybe it was like a Ricky Jay thing, but in, oh, yeah, I love him. yeah, but I mean, whatever the case, they were talking about like the psychology of kids who gravitate towards magic and who want to like, you know, create their own reality, escape from the one that they're in. Like there's definitely like a, uh, a psychological link May maybe, maybe between oh, yeah. comedy yeah. and magic. And, and I don't know about definitely. horror. Horror is more like face the fear. And then, <laughs> Comedy and magic might be to either escape or transcend it.
1: Yeah, but it's both about control. You know, you're know, you in control, and also you're hiding behind either a joke or a trick. So it's really good for shy people. Um, you don't have to be the one out there. Um, it, it's the trick that's out there. It's the joke that's out there. And it's also um, you know, telling a joke and pulling off a magic trick is kind of the same thing. You know where you're going to end up. The audience doesn't know where you're going to end up. And it's just a slight twist um, that's hopefully pulled off well. If it's not, it pisses off the audience, both with magic and with comedy,
0: yeah. because
1: they feel they've been tricked. They're very closely related.
0: Okay, so were you uh, were you a funny kid?
1: Uh, I yeah, but it was mostly just with my buddies. I was never performing at um, talent shows or anything like that. It was just uh, being a wise ass. But a lot of it was just. Being at home, alone, reading funny things and watching funny things. You know, I would watch Letterman every night
0: Yeah,
1: um, live. I, I wouldn't even tape it. I was just such a fan. And uh, sort of um, copying his mannerisms when I was in grade school. He's huge for me. And He's like a, huge. A, his, oh,
0: yeah. his retirement, when his retirement uh, announcement came out, and like I, wa- I watched, like the, I didn't see the show, but I watched the clip of it the next day, and like I got like a little emotional.
1: <laughs> I was like, "Damn." Yeah, no. I mean, he he was everything to me, and it was Letterman, and what specifically Chris Elliott on Letterman. That was it for me. That was that was the that was the guy, and um, I luckily had a chance to interview Adam Resnick who wrote for Letterman and wrote a lot of those Chris Elliott bits for the new book. Um, and I, I really couldn't even, uh, cause I'm not such a fawning fan in a lot of ways um, for many people, but when it comes to Chris Elliott and Letterman, it's just, you know, I have all the bootlegs and I remember every, every sketch. it just, it was, I was at that age where it meant everything to yeah. me at that time. What was Before it? Form my sensibility.
0: Yeah, definitely for me too. I mean, I, I grew up in Indiana, just like a stone's throw from where Letterman was from. So it was like, I felt like, uh, I don't know, connected to him in that way. You know what I'm saying? It was like, holy shit, that guy's from around here. <laughs> you know, like, and he's, and he's... Yeah,
1: no, he's a genius. And he, I think, has done more to um, influence the tone and the sensibility of comedy in the last 25 years, as anyone, um, he was a very, see, this is a good combination of horror and comedy. When Chris Elliott was on the show, he would emerge from, say, under the seats where he had been living. And I would find it as frightening as it was funny. It was very, very bizarre, um, for someone who lived beneath the seats to come out and attack, verbally attack the host. It was kind of, um, you know, It was very strange, and it was very odd. Usually in the past, you would have these special guests or characters on shows that were, um, you know, they would do their thing, but they were never sort of unhinged. And I always found Chris Elliott, when he was on Letterman particularly, completely unhinged. Like, anything could happen. Well, yeah, where... when he would emerge well, yeah i
0: just remember, I remember i'll never forget watching a bit he did where he came out with those puppies and he was like gonna do a taste test between like the new and improved canned yeah, dog food i and,
1: remember that yeah yeah i i remember that very then, well and then he, he started eating yeah, go on.
0: i was gonna say and then he starts spooning it into his own mouth and it was just like the, and the audience i thought was gonna like hurl you know just disgusting. right
1: and then he said dave i'm sorry i can't tell any difference <laughs> and then for some reason there was a joke in that, that i that cracked Letterman up, and I never quite understood why. Letterman said, are those your dogs, or something like that. Chris <laughs> said, no, these are props. And for some reason, Letterman, it must have been an inside joke, but that became, for me, kind of like a rosebud. Like how, where did that joke come from, and why did it make Letterman laugh so much? <laughs> it was, yeah. No, these are props. <laughs> <laughs> I still don't know what it means, quite frankly, but it still makes me laugh.
0: Uh, it's like, you know, I, and I'm, I'm, I wonder if it was scripted. It sounds like something that was off the
1: cuff, but... Maybe, maybe, I don't maybe. think so. I I think no. I think it was I think it was a reference to maybe the rehearsal. That would be my best guess. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, everything he did just made me laugh, and I was known at school as like the Chris Elliott guy. Like <laughs> if if anyone had any questions about Chris Elliott, you know, not about science or math or English, but like Chris Elliott, I was the go-to guy. They would come to me and ask me like, what happened on this sketch oh, what happened on that sketch? And I knew all the sketches that 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 was my claim to fame in my high school.
0: So did you ever get a chance to talk to Letterman?
1: Did I what? Did you ever get
0: a chance to talk to David Letterman?
1: Talk to Letterman? No, I never did. I had a chance to talk to Chris Elliott. Um, and actually his father, whom I'm a huge fan of, of Bob and Ray. Um, I think they're brilliant. And it was a huge influence on Letterman, Bob and Ray. Um, just by chance, I, my in-laws in Maine happened to live near Bob Elliott, and I interviewed him two summers ago for the new book, and that was a real treat, and that was great.
0: Yeah, but uh, Dave Letterman, like he's, he's sort of elusive. He's hard to get. I don't think anybody can talk to him practically.
1: No, and quite frankly, what I've learned over the years is that big names don't necessarily give big interviews. Um, there are certain people that I would love to talk to, uh, Steve Martin, Albert Brooks dave letterman but just because you have an interview with them doesn't mean you'll have a lot of access i mean each of these interviews takes upwards of 20 hours to pull off if you're if you're going to do it right and obviously you can't really get 20 hours with letterman or steve martin that just doesn't happen mean i would love to talk with letterman but it just it's just not in the cards it, it yeah. won't happen yeah well what about and why 20 hours well, these are very, very intensive interviews. They are um, like Paris Review interviews or Playboy interviews in that there's no, there's nothing in there that shouldn't be in there. It's not a transcript. It's very, very highly edited and toned, and um, everything that should be in there is in there. So there's no fluff. And to, to pull it off, I mean, at least for me it is, for me to pull this off the way I want it to, it takes about usually on average 10 to 20 hours.
0: Okay. And so why don't don't you talk a bit about the book and its conception just so listeners who uh, might be coming in cold can get an idea of what you've done.
1: Yeah. Well, this is in 2009, I put out a book called and here's the kicker, which actually I'm putting out in a longer format with 200 extra pages. But um, that book was just an excuse to talk to comedy writers that I loved and, um, like Larry Gelbart, uh, Jork, um, David Sedaris and others. And, um, that came out That you know, was published in 2009. I started working on that in 2007. It did better than I thought it would. I mean, people seem to like it in the soul pretty well. So I thought, uh, this was about two years ago that I like, there's quite a few writers that i still like to talk to, humor writers, um, some old, um, and I wanted to get to them before they passed away. But it was just another excuse to talk to these writers like Adam Resnick um, and others whom I'm just big fans of and just pick their brains about how they made it, what what advice they would have to the young comedy writer to do and not to do, and also about their experiences. So um, the new book is coming out June 24th, and it has uh, about 45 writers, uh, comedy writers in it. And some of the interviews, 15 of them are, are long, like 30 pages or so, um, some of whom have never been interviewed before, really, like Jim Downey on SNL and Henry Beard, who co-founded the National Lampoon, and 97-year-old Peg Lynch, who basically invented the modern sitcom format with a show called Ethel and Albert in the 40s. She was a total, um, just a lucky find. I just was doing research, asked someone who is an expert in radio comedy, are there any radio comedy writers still alive? And he said, well, I'm not sure. There's here here of 50, so you can go down the list and see if any are alive. And the only one who was alive was Peg Lynch, who I located in uh, Massachusetts, 96-year-old, still married for 70 years to her husband, still writing comedy. Wow. What's her secret? <laughs> you know, she is brilliant. I mean, she... Um, an amazing story. I called her out of the blue. I contacted the town hall. I unlocated the town she lived in. Called the town hall. I said, Do "You know, a Peg Lynch." And, she's, and the woman who worked at the town hall said, "Oh, Margaret Lynch. Sure, yeah, everyone knows her." So she gave me her number, called her up, and just we just hit it off. And she was telling me stories from sixty, seventy years ago. Amazing stories. And she she keeps saying that she has more stories to tell. <laughs> tell i don't know who she's going to tell them to her when but uh the ones she told me were pretty incredible like the fact that she her mother worked at the mayo clinic and as a young girl peg lynch was 14 years old she decided to start a radio show by interviewing celebrities coming through the, the clinic and the first person she interviewed was lou Gehrig the day he was diagnosed with als at the mayo clinic holy shit yeah, it, I think it might have been the last interview conducted with Luke like I can't really verify that, but it's just it, it, she was very much ahead of her time. Her comedy is very much everyday comedy, like Seinfeld or The Office. Her jokes were never written per se; they were never borscht belt. They were always tethered to character um, and situation, and it was you can see sort of the same. Um, DNA in a Seinfeld or in the office with what she was doing in the forties and the fifties. And it, it sounds like just a brilliant woman.
0: Well, you know, it, it sounds like maybe she had a better idea of what television can do because, you know, like writing, like if, if she's, you know, inventing uh, the sitcom, you know, or the, the basic format for the sitcom and, and writing this situational humor that's tethered to the everyday, like maybe t- television was early enough in its existence that people didn't quite realize what could be done with it. Is that accurate?
1: No, I don't think so. In fact, um, for the first book, I interviewed Larry Gelbart, who wrote for your show of shows and created this TV show MASH, the sitcom MASH, not the movie, but the TV show, and also wrote Tootsie and just a ton of other stuff. And he was telling me that his first job, one of his first jobs, was writing for Bob Hope. And Bob Hope was unable to make that transition at first from radio to TV because all of his gags were audio based and the visuals sort of took it away. But you're right about Peg Lynch because she later, she her first show was on radio. It then went to TV and it was a very smooth transition because of the style of humor that she had in that it was character based and they weren't, you know, jokes weren't based on a gunshot or on a. a clever turn of phrase it was based on how someone acted um, acted in a normal set not not would act in a um, vaudeville review or something just a normal for instance there was one show where ethel bet albert that he couldn't um, that she could look the entire day through her just her peripheral vision she wouldn't use for straight vision and from that scenario you know funny things happened or, F, or Albert would um, put a uh, Boy Scout hat on in the morning that he, he had as a kid, and then forget to take it off when he went to work. So there's just things like that that were almost very um, 50s or 60s, even later, uh, the style of humor. It was at least 20 years ahead of its time. So that she was never making the jokes. It was always these characters and the situations that were funny. Hmm.
0: And so what did you learn from, you know, talking to all these, uh, you know, comedians and comedy writers? Um, are there any g- consistencies in terms of their approach that you can point to that, that help to make them successful? Um, is there something in their personality, you know, a consistency of personality that you can find or something like that that you could point to and say, well, this is, you know, uh, like a, a reason why they're able to do this so well?
1: Yeah, I think um, there is... A, obsessiveness, a lot suffer from OCD, and they funneled that obsessiveness into writing. And if they don't write every day, they get nervous. But there's also an us-versus-them attitude. Um, I, don't know, I don't know where it comes from, but it's almost an anger at um, those they've perceived to have screwed them over, whether they're rich or good-looking or whatever, popular it's a I'll, sh- I'll show them type of thing. But mainly it's a just this is this work ethic where they work every day and they never stop and they never feel they've made it. In the new book, I interviewed Mel Brooks, and one would think that he would be all set to rest on his laurels, but he's, there's still a hunger in him to achieve. And I don't know where that comes from.
0: Well, and yeah, also, and he's just like incredibly sharp for his age. Like I heard him interviewed.
1: Oh, he's a, unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's astonishing. I mean, he he remembers literally everything that has happened over his career, and I think partly that has to do with him leave, living a clean life. You know, he hasn't done alcohol, drugs, or anything. His life has been comedy and working, and um, all he's ever wanted to do was to achieve. And to make people laugh, and it's still his goal, and he he works at it every day. I mean, that's something that the biggest names to the smallest names that I interviewed do. Is just they work. They put their head down and they work. But that's not what but they do. this is their job.
0: But not all of them do it clean. You know, like many comedians. I think a lot of funny people are in pain, and you know, being funny and finding the joke. Oh,
1: he's in pain too. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I, mean I, think, I think he's totally in pain.
0: I, but I think that maybe his you know he's able to you know, work through it without needing to go self-medicate or whatever. And I think a lot of uh, funny people, you know, aren't so, so lucky or so disciplined. Like, do you, did you talk to people who had that experience or who've had to, you know, conquer that demon?
1: Yeah. But a lot of them self-medicate through receiving appreciation through jokes, you know, it becomes a high for them. And if they don't, if they don't receive that high, then it's like any addict, they crave it and they become miserable. So at first it's the high, but then it becomes just something to maintain your equilibrium. And if I think that's why so many comedy writers are miserable, is that if they're not achieving the appreciation of their jokes, even for a day or two, they start to crave it like a junkie would, heroine. And um, it just becomes a, a 24-hour pursuit.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine, who struggled with addiction and who is sober, like doesn't drink or do drugs or anything, uh, like not even caffeine, but who, uh, you know, like social media, like the constantly going in mm-hmm. there for the dopamine, you know, like, um, like mm-hmm. that that becomes an addiction. And then you see, you know, you can see, uh, like we were talking earlier, um, in, you know, about television and how it, you know, the, the transition from radio to television and how that changed comedy and opened up new ground and. You can also see how the Internet and social media did the same thing for, you know, certain comedians have launched their entire career based on that, you know, as the foundation. And, um, you know, certain social media platforms like Twitter is like the perfect ground for joke tellers and joke writers. And you, know, you
1: Yes. Also, it's dangerous. I mean, I was interviewing Dan Guterman, who wrote for The Onion at 17, then he wrote for Colbert Report and then Community until recently. And he was saying that he would write 12-hour days jokes at community or Colbert and then feel the need to still post jokes three thirty, four 4 a.m. on Twitter to receive that high. And for him it became kind of a burden that if, if Twitter didn't exist, he might not have thought the need to prove himself at 3.30. But it became a way to stabilize almost a chemical, you know, like a, a drug would um, counteract Lack of serotonin or something. This was his way of counteracting it by writing a joke and then receiving, you know, a thousand likes or whatever.
0: Right. Well, thousand favorites. So, so, and you know, comedians, uh, you know, are kind of famously difficult off stage. I mean, there, there's all sorts of stories and documentation to support that. Uh, I'm curious to know of people that you talk to. Is there anyone who struck you as like surprisingly? Um, uh, self-possessed and together and not neurotic and obsessive and in need of that fix? You know, is there, are there any of them that came?
1: Well, it's hard to know uh, just from the shorter time I spend. with I mean, there are some that I befriend um, after we work on the interview together. And I have to say those, the ones I know really well, I kind of know they're all fucked up. Just like I'm fucked up. I mean, everyone seems to be fucked up. I think there's a mm. few v- People who are completely content with their lives and that's a good point. Their careers, but I think this—it's not just for come. Mm-hmm. it would go for carpenters or businessmen or lawyers or surgeons or whomever. It's just that we hear—we tend to hear more from comedy writers about their miserable situation than we would from a heart surgeon.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're unusually open people, uh, which is what one of the reasons why I love comedy. I find it to, I find it to be such a relief, uh, when people are able to articulate their pain, but, tra- you know, kind of transmute it into something with, you know, at least some dark humor in it, you know, if not,
1: uh, yeah, it becomes fodder that they use it for, um, their honesty and the work and it comes through. But I mean, if they're good, they can use anything, but it, the comedy only becomes more powerful if it's completely honest, like Richard Pryor or Louis C.K. Yeah. Or Chris Rock. I mean, that's just the genius is using everyday um, situations and frustrations to make their comedy that hit that much harder.
0: So what about people who might be listening who are interested in comedy writing? You know, whether they're comedians or they're interested in working for a scripted show or... Uh, you know, writing uh, prose, humor or whatever. Like, is there any advice that you gleaned from these interviews that you could share?
1: Yeah, it's, um, first of all, to be nice because there's a lot of talent out there. That's not nice. And it doesn't really matter how talented you are. If you're an asshole, no one's going to want to work with you. Um, the, another thing is to get as much experience as possible. Don't close yourself off. Um, and, really it's to just write and never stop just to do it all the time don't talk about writing don't necessarily read about writing just sit your ass down if you want to be a comedy writer and write and in the end everyone has sort of equal ground now i mean i could start as a high school student a website that could be potentially more popular than the New com. everyone has that potential now so it really comes down to doing what you want to do in the genre that you want to do it on your own terms and just put it out there. And hopefully uh, someone will notice it and uh, push you to the next level.
0: Yeah. I mean, it really is totally new ground when it comes to uh, like the production of content in any media really. But you think about comedy and YouTube videos and Twitter and, um, you know, all these web series that comedians are using as, as uh, you know, uh, launching pads or even more. Uh, it's a completely new landscape. Like, do you have thoughts or did you talk to people about how uh, they see things going forward,
1: you know, in terms of how entertainment. Yeah, going? I, it's totally different than when even the youngest comedy writers are starting out. I mean, that'll be changed in tears, but those who came up, came up before the advent or during the advent of the very beginning of the Internet. And um, it's totally changed. I mean, when I was first starting out, there's very, very, very few outlets that you could get into if you were lucky, if you did. Um, now anyone can do anything, which is good and bad. There's a lot of crap out there, but there's also a lot of material that rises to the top where literally a high school student in Oklahoma working out of her garage can become famous by writing jokes and get pulled up into Hollywood uh, to write for TV. I mean, that never used to happen. At the same time, there's a lot of writers who expressed this opinion that if they were coming up with Internet, they never would have become writers because they wouldn't have worked at writing. They would have worked. They would have been on um, chat rooms or downloading whatever or meeting you know, girls on online, they wouldn't have spent the necessary hundreds of hours in their room alone, just practicing their crafts.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it's and I guess you could maybe find a bridge between the two and say that you're using it for work if you're a joke writer. And I was reading just recently about a, a guy from the Midwest who was like working some job, like unrelated to entertainment or comedy, who got hired by Seth Meyers to come write for the new late night.
1: Um, oh right, that's fascinating. You know that never would have happened in the past. I think he was working what in the, yeah, like in the Midwest on a computer type job.
0: Yeah, it was like in Peoria. And he,
1: <laughs> like, yeah, and wrote great jokes. See that that has that didn't happen. That just didn't happen. And I think comedy has changed for the better because that's opening up. That we're not just getting the same type of writer with the same type of experience writing the same type of jokes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I know. It's like definitely widened the, like the, or what is it? Lowered the, the, the bar in terms of getting in and being able to have your stuff seen. And, um, you know, I guess like another like related question, you know, because you have all these different people, uh, millions of people, uh, trying to do this or trying to be funny on the internet and trying to get clicks and views and whatever. And some people, uh, get plucked from obscurity or their Twitter feeds rise up or their viral videos, uh, go viral. And uh, I w- I wonder if you have any thoughts as to, um, you know, the 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 split between innate talent and hard work. Like, you know, are are people born funny? Um, and if they're not born funny, can they make themselves funny through hard work? Or do you think it's it's something that you just have to kind of have?
1: Um, that's interesting. I think um, there has to be something there. But every single person who is a household word in comedy, be it Mel Brooks, Louis C.K., Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, they've just worked their asses off, and they continue to work their asses off. I mean, Louis C.K. has a huge hit now with his TV show, but he has this is his third TV show, and I remember him putting out DVDs of homemade movies that he did. Right. that didn't start well. This is 15, 20 years ago. So there does have to be a combination of incredible drive and at least some sort of talent that, like any talent you have to work on, is different than uh, working at the piano or learning anything. You, you know, If you want to do stand-up, you just have to get up there and do hundreds of hours. If you want to write comedy, you just have to sit down and write for hundreds of hours. But there seems to be some sort of internal drive that forces people, even if they're not good, to know that they will be good, and that they, at the very least, they will improve. Yeah. Uh, There has to be something internal that tells them that. Now it won't work in every case, but in many cases, people do get better. And if you were to go back and read Woody Allen's first stories, or Albert Brooks' first scripts you would notice a difference between what they later did and what they were doing at the beginning of their careers. Well, sure.
0: Yeah. And I think too, you know, like the, like along the same lines is, uh, the talent question. Uh, you know, obviously there's the drive and there's the hard work and the writing repetitively or whatever, and the performing repetitively. But I always find too, or I I often find that there's a a natural physicality to funny people. That's just funny. Like when I look at Will Ferrell, Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe some yeah. of this is because he's made me laugh before, so it's sort of he's sort of primed the pump, but I just have to he just has to look at me and I start laughing you know
1: like uh not right, know. well, that's the thing, and like he didn't know how he it's impossible to know how funny really you're gonna you're gonna be you know you'll be funny in front of an audience, but will Ferrell didn't know he would i'm assuming be funnier than anyone else um it's just something that there's something that's just mysterious and you have to just trust the mysteriousness of it and just have faith in yourself because in a sense he could have been as unfunny as the least funny SNL member. But there was something that connected to audiences that he didn't unassuming know was going to connect. It just happens. And that's just a case of him working at his craft and taking the chance and going into a career in comedy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But I, like, I guess like the, the, the thing that uh, I'm sort of driving at with a guy like him, I think Tracy Morgan uh, is another guy that is just sort of naturally funny. And like there's something about his physicality that distinguishes him as funny uh, more so than other comics. You know, some comics it's like, wow, this guy's really witty and he, his delivery is killer. But like as a physical presence, he doesn't maybe make me laugh as quickly or as naturally as, as somebody like Will Ferrell or Tracy Morgan or something.
1: You know so what is it? Can you, can you narrow it down? Like to me, that's sort of like an X factor. That you, you're right. I mean, Tracy Morgan made me laugh harder than anyone. Will Ferrell amazingly funny. Like why are they funnier than a Chris Kattan? I, you know, if, that's like, a, if I don't know, you know, yeah,
0: I I don't know. I mean, I think I think like some people just look funny. <laughs> like not meaning they're funny looking, but they just there's something about their expression. Uh, or their, I guess, their delivery and the combination of the two that just inherently triggers like something in us uh, on a primal level. Um, but you know, it's got yeah, be, it, it's, it's got to be combined with good material, obviously.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, no one knows how they're going to um, appeal to an audience. Whether you're a writer or an actor or a director or whatever, you just take a chance and hope you will, because it's almost like tickling yourself or smelling your own breath it's hard to know how you're going to come across comedically and in the end it's not something like Will Ferrell couldn't have spent 20 years studying how to do it he just does it it's just a natural thing but it's all very murky and mysterious I mean like I don't I don't—I try to not necessarily analyze it but like why is Will Ferrell so funny I don't know it's just It always comes down to he's funny, (laughs) and that's it. I mean, that may that may that may be after twenty years of hard work, but that's just like like why is he funny? I don't know. He just is. He just got it. uh, It's like why someone is good looking? They just are. I think there's something very primitive about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, it's like it's uh, it's just a question. I mean, it's got to be a little bit of both. But I think about that, like you know, there are people who can just hit a baseball. You know, there's.
1: Yeah. Right that's right and um maybe after 30 years of playing alone in their backyard but in the end what does it matter they they've done it they've accomplished it mm. and some people just have it and some people don't
0: well and they should also and it's also an interesting thing to think about uh with respect to standups in particular but anybody who performs in front of a live audience and really gets good at it over a, you know a period of years is the collaborative nature of uh that process meaning You know, stand-ups, like I I remember listening to a recent interview with uh, Louis C.K., and he was talking about how he comes up with new material. And a lot of times he's doing it on stage in the moment where he'll go off script or whatever and start riffing, and he'll read the audience's reaction and then build that into a bit. And so when you talk about, like, these guys not really knowing how they're going to be received uh Well, you know, you, you kind of hone your act, whether it's you know the line you deliver or a certain uh, facial expression you make or a certain physicality that you bring to stage. You hone that by by getting that feedback. Do you know what I'm saying? So the the audience is a huge part of that development. You know, you have to have that. Well,
1: in. yeah, right, and th- that's a case of opening yourself up. Like if Louis C.K. were home alone in his pajamas listening to talk radio and writing material, he couldn't have come up with certain material that he came out with in front of an audience. It's very back and forth, and comedy has to be that way. And that's another case of getting yourself out there. And actually stand-up and improv is incredibly important. A great way to learn comedy for any writer, even if you don't plan to go into it professionally, to know what works immediately. Um, you know, it's easy to write these jokes at home, and whether people laugh at it or not, you'll never find out. But if you're doing improv, either they will or they won't laugh, and there's no quicker way of finding out what will work than to be in front of an audience.
0: It's a cold judgment, you know? There's no hiding, there's no faking it.
1: No, there isn't. No, there's absolutely no faking. And people aren't going to fake their laughs in a comedy club, um, and nor should they. I mean, it's, you know, just because someone wants to be a comedy writer doesn't mean that the audience has to encourage him or her it's really um very basic are you funny or are you not funny and it's up to the person to decide what makes them funny or what will make them more funny in, in down the road and what what it, it what it's going to take to make that transition i mean you know what did it take um Patton oswalt to become a brilliant comedian i've seen early tapes and he was young and knew at it, and he was you could see he was a bit struggling like where does that spark come from it's just very mysterious um like why did he become brilliant and others didn't i don't know it's just it's a strange thing it's very murky
0: i think people. i think some people quit I think a lot of people quit or they get bitter or you know like there's uh I think a lot of times people just the people who make it are the ones who keep going because uh, you know not to keep going back to louis but I' just I think it's just because of the same interview but um, you know, like you said, he had three television shows or he's had three. Uh, I think the, the most recent one that's been this big success is his third. And, uh, you know, he, he was asked about it and he's like, this has been a horrible 20 year process.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: he's like, right. and, the, the, like, the the path to getting here has been an absolute nightmare. Um, yeah. Right. But, but he that's didn't stop, thing.
1: you know, he didn't stop. And that's really the, the thing from, um, a difference between making it and not making it is like you got, you can't stop and you do have to enjoy it. You know, if it's torture, you're going to stop. And you knew, I don't know Louis C.K. at all, but I assume he enjoys the process. If he didn't, he would have quit long ago. And a lot of people do quit, but this is a guy who's been in the business over 30 years yeah, and has never stopped. I mean, he just, He's like Mel Brooks. I mean, Mel Brooks is close to ninety. He's not stopping. He's creating a new Broadway show.
0: Hmm.
1: This is their this is their life. If there's anything else these people could have done, and you see this often, you know, they go into their father's business or they go into law or whatever, they're going to do it. But if it's their life, then they'll just keep at it until the day they die. Yeah. Whether they become popular or not, you know, a lot don't become popular. Hmm.
0: Well, and like Louis, you know, like he's f- like famously hardworking, like even comics are like Jesus, you know, like guys like super prolific and just never stops. But um, mm-hmm. when you think about when you talk about whether or not somebody who's worked that hard and has been through the trenches the way that he has and has come up kind of the long, hard way uh, to the top of the mountain. Uh, when I think about his stand up act, and I think about the you know, how he smiles when he gets a joke, you know, <laughs> like, when he, yeah, like, right. right. That, that smile to me is like a huge part of I think, because I've k- kind of thought like, why is this guy so good at this? And it's like, you know, when it comes to like the physicality of a comedian, of a funny person, like that smile to me is is hugely winning, and I think it's a big reason why his appeal is so uh, strong for people. And I think it's real. Like I think he really loves it. Like oh, know, yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's not like he's just up there like you know beaming at the crowd for effect. Like it, it's no. it's like a kid. You can see it. You know, there's something childlike about it up there.
1: Right, and you, you see that with musicians, too. I'm like, if, if you see a Paul McCartney, well, why do his melodies hit harder than other people's melodies? Well, I don't know, but maybe he enjoys the process mm. of writing a song more than others, or maybe he just has it, I don't know. Yeah, uh, The whole thing is, I and mean, that's the thing with these books, is like you can't, and I'm, cl- I'm including my book and books in this, is like you can't study any book and improve overnight. You know, And no one's going to have the same answer. It's up to you to decide what works, what doesn't work, and how you're going to make it, it's a very personal thing. And um, there's no answer. And that's why I think courses and um, books and all these other things when it comes to comedy are sort of ridiculous. Because first of all, they're usually taught by people who have not made it, who are, need money, <laughs> and who can't make a living at what they're doing and need extra money. But there's no one answer. And it really comes down to you w- wending your way through life and just... Finding out what works and what does not work.
0: So why why write the book? I mean, is this like I'm assuming like part of it is like uh, curiosity uh, and wanting to provide uh, you know some sort of resource for people who have an interest in this, and uh, obviously comedy writers who who, you know many of whom work kind of behind the scenes but are of great fascination to people. It's nice to be able to kind of spotlight them. But on a personal level and on a creative level, were you going into this thinking like I want to learn? Uh, more about how to do this. I want to use this to help me
1: get to X or create Y. Well, if anything, it was sort of um, selfish. I mean, I just I just wanted to talk to these people, and especially the older ones, Peg Lynch, Mel Brooks, Larry Galbart, whom I spoke to in the first book, who has since passed away, Irving Brecker, who was 95 when I talked to him, who wrote for the Marx Brothers, who punched up the script to The Wizard of Oz, these are just people who were connected to another time that I wanted to, to talk with and, and sort of find out how they did it. I mean, it was a very mysterious thing for me when I was living in New Orleans and in Maryland working retail. Like how does one get from a point A to point B? How does one become a Larry Gelbart? It just, I just It was very, very, it was almost like going to the moon. Like how, how do you do that? And that was, it's, it's still in me now. I like, how do you, how did you achieve the success you achieved? Um, you know, in the case of Larry Gilbert, how did you start off as a 15-year-old whose father was a barber writing jokes to support your family? I mean, how does that happen? It just, it's a very interesting process. It's almost like talking to a carny or something, you know, a, a person who goes off and achieves something in this world. That's always interesting me. Yeah, So it's I- sort of a... I don't yeah. want to,
0: I want to stop you. Cause like, you know, we, we've talked about like, you know, you have to be obsessive and hardworking and you never stop. And you know, you're trying to fill some, a lot of times you're trying to fill some sort of hole or something, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's the, the element of luck, like the chance, like I want to say Woody Allen was a similar case where he's like writing jokes and he's a teenager and he's out earning his parents, you know, like it was this, <laughs> this crazy yeah. turn of events. And like, how do you make sense of that? I mean, you know, yeah, he showed up, he was there. Like, I mean, do you, do you have
1: any insight well, no, that's I mean, that's that's the, that's the mystery. It's like, why was he? Why did he resonate with audiences? Why did he resonate with Gentiles in the Midwest in the '70s? I, I don't know. It's just very strange. What was it about his character that touched people and still continues to touch people? Was it the level of joke he was writing, or was he just working on a different level? I, I'm not even sure he could explain it. I'm not sure he would want to explain it. But it's, um, it's a very interesting... I mean, it's very personal when you laugh at someone. Um, and it, it, when someone writes a joke and, and people don't laugh, they become very, very offended. It's a very personal thing. But I'm not, I'm not quite sure why one becomes a genius and one becomes a hack. Because everyone starts off, I would assume, pretty much at the same level, unless you are a Mozart or maybe even a Woody Allen writing jokes at 14, I'm not sure why some people achieve and others don't and why some make connections and others don't. I mean, there's a lot of comedians, comedians who only appeal to other comedians, but they don't appeal to audiences. And I I wonder why that's the case. Like, What does a Jerry Seinfeld have that another person who is respected in the industry not have? Um, It's just there's an X factor, and you just can't really put your finger on it but there are certain things you can do that run across the board that you see with people who have achieved and that is um, just working very hard and never stopping.
0: And then in terms of like actual the, the actual mechanics of joke writing, like how technical did you get with these people talking to them about how they actually do the creative work and build the thing? Like did you learn any tricks of the trade? Well, yeah.
1: It's funny because a lot of people don't want to talk about it because it's a very mysterious thing even to them. Like Dick Cabot said, I just I don't know where I I got most of the jokes. It just like appeared out of out of thin air. And if you talk about it too much, it's almost like it's um bad luck. Like it it will stop happening. You know, the gods of comedy will stop giving you material. So as far as I mean, you can get very technical A plus B equals C when it comes to jokes. But in the end, it's a very personal thing. They write about what that interests them and what makes them laugh rather than what they think an executive or an audience will laugh at.
0: So, and if you were talking to, like, let's say, just a, a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old or just somebody at the at the beginning, wherever, whatever age they happen to be, and they were to say to you, uh, Mike, what should I do? Like, if I want to break in, uh, would you say, start writing jokes and putting them on Twitter and, and do viral videos? I mean, is that the the, the advice that's going on? Well,
1: I, I I think it's important to do what you like. I don't think anything is less important than the next thing. I don't think writing a graphic novel is any less important than writing a Shots and Murmurs for a New Yorker or, or writing a video like Nathan Fielder um, or doing anything. You know, what interests you should be the most important to you, and one is no less important than the next. But I think what is the most important thing to do is just to write um, honestly and not to try to appeal to the majority of constituents and just try to make yourself laugh. And I think a lot of writers, they're so used to being told what to write by executives that they sort of lost why they got into it to begin with. But in the end, you do have to be honest and true to yourself. And it's only then that you will be discovered. Like a Megan Amram on Twitter has hundreds of thousands of followers. She wasn't trying to write, to, I'm assuming, to be discovered or to try to impress anyone. She was writing jokes that made her laugh. And the audience in the end could sense that.
0: Yeah, I'm amazed. It, I'm amazed by people who, because who, I can write a funny tweet every once in a while. Um, But the people whose output is just like super prolific and constant and consistently good, like it seems to indicate a a consistent state of mind, Uh, and it's sort of hard to talk about and articulate. But you know when you're like in a funny mood, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you you know when when you're sort of on and you're like, okay, I'm be I can be funny right now, and then other times I just I don't feel it, and I feel like are these people just constantly in that mode, or have they just learned how to
1: somehow? Ratchet themselves up or something, you know. It's it, it, no. I mean, it becomes a job. It's like you know the plumber who doesn't feel like fixing the clogged toilet. They just have to do it. And whether you're in the mood or whether you're not in the mood, you shape your thought process to come up with jokes. Just like George Harrison has talked about in the past, how even if he wasn't in the mood, he would think about melody and writing songs. That just becomes your job.
0: Well yeah, that's the music's a good point because you feel th- like I remember reading uh, an interview I want to say it was like or I was watching something and Sting was talking about his job and he's like my job is to go out and sing um you know Roxanne every night
1: like it's the first time I ever sing in front of people. Yeah,
0: right. It's gotta be like, God, that's gotta get old after a while, but that's what that's what you got
1: But that's even different than him writing songs. I mean like he that's almost like a performance aspect. But like from a creative spark aspect is even more difficult because I mean, listen, everyone has a bad day. Everyone gets in a fight with their loved ones and not everyone has to then go to work and be funny. So um, it's not as difficult as working in a West Virginia mind, but it's, you know, it takes practice and it takes focus and it may not be the most pleasant thing in the world to do if you're angry but have to go in and write 50 jokes for Colbert or something. I mean, that, that's tough. And not only that, but to do it day after day after day. Yeah. That can take a lot out of you.
0: Sure. No, I can't, I can't believe it. And like, speaking of Colbert, like that's a, like that show and what it's been like a decade, he's been doing it. Uh, I still don't know how to, how
1: they do that. Like, you know, yeah, I mean? no, that, that shows a magic act. Ag- I don't know how he does it. He's, he like 3d chess or something. He's just operating on another level. I didn't think they could, I mean, I couldn't picture it being done at all for even a week. But the fact they've been doing it for ten years is pretty astonishing. Well, he's just, a, he's just a genius.
0: He is, and like to get the satire right, it, like, satire is really hard, especially consistently, because it can easily be like, I don't know, it, like it's a tight. See, I always like the the metaphor I always use is like tightrope. It just feels like he's up on that tightrope, and he just he, he can just stay up there.
1: You know? uh, yeah, and operating as Colbert also as his character, which is incredibly difficult but then on top of that to interview guests um most of whom he agrees with but has to has to through the character show that he doesn't agree with is like a, a feat of engineering i don't know how he does it well
0: he's got, got a he got that, that strong background in improv which you talked about earlier and like people who are super good at improv and that's like that can be a learned skill i mean you have to have the agility of mind to do it but um you know I, i've I think about uh, movies and like the possibility of making a movie uh, like I think a lot of people do who like tell stories or write books or are interested in this kind of stuff. And I always imagine myself wanting to work with uh, actors who are really good at improv because it just seems like that would give you another gear. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's one thing to have an actor who can interpret a script and, and read the lines on the page in a really effective way. But if you have people who can really play like that, like why would you not want them, you know?
1: Oh, absolutely. And it it strengthens a lot of different uh, aspects. And I mean, even not just performers, but writers who have done improv, like Sarah Silverman, who has written for Colbert and Conan and all these other shows. It helps as a writer. Uh, It's incredibly valuable to do that. If. If you want to get into comedy, in any scenario.
0: So, have you ever have you ever done it? Have you ever done like improv classes or gotten on stage or anything?
1: No, I mean with what I just said, I'm you know, Mr. Brave, man. I never did do it because I was too shy. Um, and maybe my writing lacks for it. I think I. I don't know, who knows if I would have been better if I had done it. Yeah. But, um, it's not to say you have to do it per se, but I definitely think it does not hurt at the very
0: least. So what are your aspirations? I mean, you're obviously, uh, carving out a nice, uh, and, and successful career as a journalist and as a, a writer of books and whatnot. But like, do you have like a comedy scripts in the works? Do you have ideas for shows? Like, are you trying to get, uh, into that part of, uh, the game?
1: No. Um, I, it occurred to me and not that long ago I just don't enjoy that I don't enjoy script writing and I don't enjoy sending it to a producer i I've done it and you know for them to come back with twelve just change business suggestions. I like writing for books and I like writing for magazines and for print and um it, it, it only until recently was I okay with that you know I always wanted to do other things but I think I'm pretty content now and it, I don't know if I could, do, well, no, it's could a, do it anymore.
0: It's interesting to hear you say that because like I, you know, I came into the, my career thinking like I want to be this great novelist. And then I've gone through this period where it's like, I think I like nonfiction. I want to work in this collage way. I really like reading a lot of long form journalism. I like to do this podcast. Like maybe this is the thing. Like it, 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 for some people anyway, it can be a process to sort of settle on what your creative identity is and accepting. Right. And that,
1: absolutely and that goes back to one thing is no less important than the next i mean is doing a great podcast any less important than writing for a sitcom i don't think it is especially if that's what you enjoy doing is writing a syndicated comic strip any less important than writing um, a shots and murmurs for new yorker well if that's what you want to do and that's what you do your best work doing then no it isn't and i don't think there should be any uh, sense from the person like that only writing for TV comedy is important only writing movies is important because there are upsides and downsides to every type of writing job. And quite frankly, um, there isn't much money in writing books or articles, but I don't have to deal with the bullshit of Hollywood. Right. And I, I can write what I want, and I can, at the end of the day, be happy with the fact that I got to write what I want in the way that I wanted to do it. Um, that It took a long time. But I th- I'm happy with that now, and I don't necessarily want to deal with other aspects of writing that I would find frustrating.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, can you hear the vacuum in the background? By the way, <laughs> someone's. Back. No. Okay, good. Um, I want to. I'm dying to ask you. Like, yeah, it, like of all the people you've talked to, both for uh, you know, and here's the kicker, and and the new one, like, was there a, an interview that stands out? You know, like somebody who just really impressed you or somebody who was very strange <laughs> like anything you know that stands out as like the most memorable interview person you talked to
1: well memorable you know it usually is with the older ones larry Gelbart, irv Brecker, peg lynch mel brooks because they don't give a shit what they say anymore and they're not there's no real persona to protect um with a lot of uh, writers and actually with anyone anyone I would interview, celebrities politicians, they seem to retreat back to the same stories but with the older writers there's an honesty there a well um, earned honesty and they're very very honest about themselves, their career and what one needs to do to succeed and to talk to someone like Irv Brecker who was best friends with Groucho Marx and who wrote for uh, Wizard of Oz and all these other things. It's, it's just, you know, it's a link to another time, a time when comedy couldn't be studied in school, college, when they were basically just wandering off into the wilderness and just really, I mean, talk about pressure. If you didn't come up with a joke, you couldn't feed your family. So th- those are the people that I actually really love talking to because um, comedy was was different than it seems it was less corporate and um it was almost more of a uh, adventurous thing to do you know like going off into the sahara or something and uh so i think i feel lucky after having written these two books to have been able to talk to a bob elliott or a peg lynch those writers who have been incredibly influential but have may not be around for long. Yeah. And to be able to talk to them is really a privilege. I mean, it's, it's like talking to someone who pitched to Babe Ruth or something. It just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, And it won't it won't for long.
0: And you know that, that earned honesty you talk about? Like, can we start doing that earlier? Or do you have to be old to be that cool? Because I, I love that about old people, how like they get to a point where they don't give a shit. <laughs> like, uh, well,
1: that, the thing is, like when I reached out to these, these older writers, there's never an assistant. There's never a PR person. There's never a manager. It's just them writing back if they do have email or by regular mail. Um, and there's no bullshit. I mean, it's just, it's completely refreshing. Um, there's, there's no, it's just a strange thing. It's not like they're a brand or something. They're just normal people who wrote jokes rather than this million dollar business head. Yeah. Where you have to jump through all these hoops to get through.
0: And if you do a, if you do a third, like, is there going to be a trilogy? You think you have another compendium of interviews in you? Then, and, and if so, like, aside from Letterman, is there anybody that you haven't yet talked to that you like really,
1: really want to talk to? Uh, this is it. The second one is it. I'm going to move on. I'm going to uh, work on some other pro- projects, but I, there won't be another one of these. This is it. This is it. Okay.
0: Well, uh, they're, they're great books and, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and, uh, you know, for doing this work because you know, as a comedy junkie and somebody who's interested in all this stuff, uh, it's like really an invaluable resource and, um, you know, uh, just, uh, uh, you know, hard to find. So I
1: appreciate it. Well, that's really nice. And I mean, that was another reason I wrote the jokes is because when I was a comedy junkie coming up, there were very few books of interviews with current writers there was SNL books in your show, show books, but nothing really about with current writers. And current not necessarily being young, but just anyone alive. Right. Uh, but with, the, you know, <laughs> with a pulse. You know, with a pulse. So that was another. I mean, the quintessential reader for this book, I always pictured to be, you know, a 15-year-old in his or her high school library, skipping math class and just stumbling on this book and being happy they stumbled on the book.
0: Well. Well, I'm not 15, but I'm happy I stumbled on it. I thought you were 15. I thought you were very mature. (laughs) No. But uh, great great talking with you, man. Thanks again. Hey, thank you. All right, folks. That's Mike Sachs. Go get his book. It's called Poking a Dead Frog, available now from Penguin. You can find him online at MikeSachs.com. And you can follow him on Twitter, where his handle is at MichaelBSachs. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com go get that app the free official app of this program the other people app get it download it to your device it's available wherever apps are available and then you can stream everything every single episode the archives conversations with a a whole host of writers including folks like george saunders cheryl strade uh jess walter jess walters i always forget is it jess walters or jess walter fucks with my head but get the app it's great it's free and then sign up for premium right there within the app. Stream everything. What a deal. Okay. So uh, as you listen to this, I might be in my vacation rental. At this, uh, at this exact moment, uh, I might be regretting the decision with every fiber of my body. Every fiber of my being. I might be having heat stroke. I might be en route to a local hospital. I might be getting uh, attacked by chickens. Which are strange animals. I'm not going to lie. Like little dinosaurs. That's what chickens are. They're little dinosaurs. So I hope this works out. I just want to have a good time. I want to relax somehow, unplug a little bit, uh, maybe read a book. That would be a revelation. But you know what? It probably won't happen because I'm going to be with my daughter. uh, And, uh, you know, I'm in a one-room situation. She needs to learn how to swim. My my kid does. So I'm probably going to be doing that a lot of the time. I'll be in the pool trying to teach her how to swim and she will be clinging to me, clawing at my neck and sobbing. Please remember that Montaigne didn't know how to swim and that Raymond Chandler died of uh, pneumonia brought on by late stage alcoholism. That's it for now. Thanks to Mike Sachs. Go get his book. Thanks to you guys as always for tuning in and listening. I'll be back again on Wednesday with another episode. Uh, just as I said at the top of the show The program will continue all this week on its regular schedule with no interruptions because I'm committed to providing high quality content to you. I feed the stray cats. That's what I do. You got to feed the stray cats. That's what this show is. People who listen to this show are stray cats. I think I'm a stray cat, metaphorically speaking, Uh, which, uh, which makes me wonder, are there other animals that can be strays? I mean I guess uh I guess they're stray dogs. But what else? Are there stray chickens? (laughs) I guess I'm gonna find out. I feel like a stray chicken might be dangerous. Why am I scared of chickens?